Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that aims to help you understand all the current political divisions, but really isn't very good at maths. This is episode 160, I'm Tiernan Nduyeb, and as her royal squishness the Queen has delivered a speech of potential nothings with side notes of uh-oh, it's clear that the Prime Minister and bleached grimace Boris Johnson likes to lie to women and then make them read out all his false promises to other people. It's a wonder that he hasn't already got a YouTube channel about how to pick up using the game. With all the enthusiasm of a child who's been asked to read a bit out loud of a book that they hate to a classroom they hate more and a teacher that they wish was dead, the Queen, dressed like a sad lint truffle, rattled through 26 bills, like someone reading out a list of the most boring family restaurants in your suburban town. It was essentially a Conservative election manifesto, but read out by a celebrity supporter, which is pretty insulting to the El Monarch if you're bothered by that sort of thing, though I feel it could be the beginning of her match doing this properly and setting up a website for her to read out, say, your friend's name and wish them happy birthday, or telling them what a dick they are for ten of her own face papers. Of the more authoritarian-sounding bill it was the end of freedom of movement for EU citizens, which it was selfish of the Queen not to announce by saying, under these measures, my Greek husband wouldn't have been able to come here and just drive into people's cars. As to be honest, that would almost make it sound appealing. There was a proposal of tougher jail sentences, maybe because Johnson and his potentially law-breaking government think it may be safer in a cell than out in the post-no-deal riots. And there was one for voter ID, which I'm all for, as there's been far too much voter ego and super-ego over the years so nice for the subconscious to get a go. Of course, ID actually means, you know, ID as in voter identification, despite there being an incredibly small amount of voter fraud in the UK and all trials mainly showing that it will stop about 11 million people in poverty and foreign nationals from voting. But I'm sure that people like Secretary of Transport and love child of a face scrawled on a plank of wood and a knee, Grant Shapps, will make up for it as he'll just vote under each of his online identities. It was all bluster and false confidence with the pretense that this is what will be happening over the next parliamentary session, with Chancellor and Mr Potato Head, but a special edition where you can remove his heart, brain and conviction, Sajid Javid, even going so far to announce that there will be a new budget on November the 6th, just days after we might have left the EU, because I suppose someone will need to explain the going rate of rat meat and how many suitcases of money you'll need to be smuggled to Jersey. 
But here's the rub. Queen's speeches are meant to be about what the new sitting government intends to do. But this mob of raggy doll rejects doesn't have a majority, doesn't have a plan for the next week, let alone year, and may not be around in a matter of days depending on what happens. They may as well have handed the Queen a Christmas wish list of their ideal fantasy Space Olympics team. Labour leader and animated corduroy elbow patch Jeremy Corbyn said the Queen's speech was fool's gold, which isn't really fair at all to the Stone Roses, because there are far worse 1989 tracks you could compare it to, like for example any of the four Milli Vanilli releases, all of which just involved them pretending they were doing something. In Johnson's address, he criticised Corbyn for not wanting an election after wanting one, saying that the Labour leader's policy on cake is to neither have it or eat it, which is quite a rich viewpoint from someone whose cake policy would be pretending he knows exactly how to eat it, smashes it all over his face and trousers, and then blaming everyone else for ruining it and making a mess. Over a third of the proposals in the Queen's speech were for post-Brexit laws, despite there still being no indication of how we'll leave, if we'll leave at all, or if we'll just face plant out and be left licking sand until the tide comes in and puts us all out of our misery. A week ago, a government source told the press that Johnson's Brexit plan was essentially impossible due to a phone call between the PM and German Chancellor, aka Bowl of Dumplings turned upside down and popped into a jacket, Angela Merkel. Yes, it does appear that Number 10 now has more leaky sources than a cheap condiments factory, with many certain that actually all of those government sources are the PM's special advisor and walking stress headache Dominic Cummings trying to pass the blame onto the EU, rather than just admit that their big idea to solve the Northern Ireland border problem is to make Northern Ireland keep EU customs rules, but also UK ones, causing the need for a whole ton of checks and a nationwide identity crisis as they aren't really aligned with either country, which is something I don't think they really need. Again... Hey, maybe Grant Shapps can give them some tips. Hmm? President of the European Council and man who always looks like he's planning to steal your chips, Donald Tusk, said it was like Johnson didn't actually want a deal and accused him of playing a stupid blame game, which also isn't really what Northern Ireland needs. Again. But later in the week, the Prime Minister met with Irish Taoiseach and a man who always looks like he's part of a comical insurance advert, Leo Vradka, and afterwards they supposedly agreed that they could see a pathway to a deal, though that could have just been a polite way of them telling each other to walk away and fuck off. Hey, I can see the road to victory, it's over there, please take it and go away so that I can finally get a breather. One senior government official said that there are no two men that want a deal more than Johnson and Vradka, but that's not true as there's two lads at the end of my road whose supplier seems to be running late this week and they're well twitchy. The two-day summit of EU leaders starts on Thursday before the House of Commons sits on Saturday. Yes, Saturday, like office staff who haven't really put the work in so now have to do overtime. Pundits are calling it Super Saturday because they're lonely and have no lives. Because the term Super Saturday is usually reserved for lots of big sporting events, actually exciting things all happening on the same day, which I suppose does work as a comparison as this is just one really big race with potentially a lot of losers if they aren't already disqualified due to so many false starts. Super Saturday is also the name for the last Saturday before Christmas in the US. And again, I suppose that does work, because if the House of Commons don't work out a deal, then there is a chance that the UK's presence won't be felt in the EU. Then again, if no deal is agreed on by the end of Super Saturday, it actually means that legally Johnson has to write to the EU to ask for an Article 50 extension, which the government keeps saying they have a loophole to get around. I guess it could be that they'll all swap voter ID cards and some poor civil servant will get dicked while Grant Shapps is hiding in the lose. Towards the end of the Queen's speech, not long after she mentioned a bill that's supposed to endure dignity and old age, as she, aged 93, had to read out a half-assed creative writing endeavour from a giant rolled sock. After that, she announced the Environment Bill, which got all of nine words. Concerning that the end of the world barely gets a headline, but instead they're keen to extend prison sentencing. 
It may be because over the past two weeks, campaign group Extinction Rebellion have been causing disruptions with their protests all over the country, but also the world, because that's how you make an effective protest, you know, by causing disruption. If you want to make anyone notice you, but your tactic is to stand out the way and occasionally say, excuse me, you're unlikely to do very well. Johnson called the protesters uncooperative crusties and an incredible example of Freudian projection before ordering the police to use the full force of the law against protesters. Which is odd, because you'd assume, based on his own unlawful record, that Boris would respect any XR lot who respect, but fundamentally disagree with the police. Meanwhile, at the SNP party conference, party leader and deputy head who hates every child in her school, Nicola Sturgeon, has said that she will request a Section 30 for a second Scottish independence referendum by the end of the year. I mean, let's be fair, what on earth would the no campaign be this time? Better together doesn't really work anymore, does it? Sorry, I swear it'll be the last time. Can we give it another go? I can change. I promise I can change. SNP party delegates also voted overwhelmingly to decriminalise drugs if they gained devolved powers to do so. And while there are many good reasons for drug decriminalisation, I guess if you are going to have to have Brexit against your will, you may as well be off your tits and finding it really funny, even if it's really, really not. US President and modern-day Chernobyl disaster but in a person, Donald Trump, has withdrawn US troops from Syria, betraying the Kurds who allied with America in stopping ISIS, and instead has now allowed far more power to Syrian dictator and flesh C-3PO Bashar al-Assad, Russian forces, Turkish authoritarian Bampot and large nostril Recep Erdogan, and ISIS, who Trump has now managed to undefeat. Trump said he no longer wants America to be part of what he called an endless war, so he seems to be solving that by just running away, something that, to be fair, he has precedent for thanks to his draft dodging. Similarly, we should have guessed that he'd happily let Syrian Kurds ally with the US and then completely abandon them, in the same way that he's probably already planning to wait till it all calms down and then shamelessly ask them to build a Trump hotel on the ruins of Damascus for him before refusing to pay. Erdogan has used the US troop withdrawal to start bombing Syrian Kurdish areas, but Trump has threatened Turkey by saying he would obliterate the Turkish economy if any of their actions are off limits. Though considering they're already killing lots of civilians, you wonder what on earth that would take to be off limits. I mean, would it only be if Turkish troops took time off to do an SNL sketch about him? Also, Trump said that he destroyed the Turkish economy before, which can only mean that he thinks that him tucking into a large stuffed roast on Thanksgiving was him somehow eating a top government economic advisor, in the same way that he probably genuinely thinks people in Hungary lack food. In other news, Shadow Chancellor and man who definitely goes on for over an hour if you ask him how it's going, John McDonnell, has suggested that Jeremy Corbyn would stand down as leader if he lost another election, while Corbyn's aides have denied that, saying that he would be in it to win it. How unlike the Labour leadership to be divided on whether or not they should stay or leave. Hmm? Am I right? See what I did there? <laughs> uh, uh. Former Foreign Secretary and baguette left out in the rain, Jeremy Hunt, sadly reminded everyone that he existed by piping up with an open letter warning the EU to avoid a catastrophic failure of statecraft, something that, to be fair, he's an expert in. Hunt said that delaying Brexit only increases the chances of a no deal, as if having more time to plan means no plan. Yeah, you can see why he was such a shit health secretary for so many years with logic like that. Yes, we need fewer doctors in order to avoid not being able to treat any patients. No. I hope he learns from his mistakes and takes an exceedingly long time before he comments on anything again to avoid us all telling him to fuck off. And lastly, the Leave.eu campaign has made an out-of-character apology for posting a tweet with a picture of Angela Merkel and the words, we didn't win two world wars, to be pushed around by a kraut. 
What if Oscar the Grouch was racist? Aaron Banks, who definitely didn't win two world wars, admitted that the tweet went too far and posted a picture of a sad emoji. But he still said that it wasn't right that Germany was suggesting that Northern Ireland separate from the UK. So what he's saying is that he'd prefer it if rather than give a country independence, it continued to take rule from a head of state of German descent. Oh, sorry, was that too far? Sad face emoji... And the government has dodged a pledge to deliver full fibre to all households by 2025. Yes, they mean broadband, but I think it's apt that they continue to sound like difficult shits. No, that last gag didn't really work, did it? But this is the sort of truly democratic show where I like to present that sort of half-written content to you so you can reword it in your head and therefore it makes sense and it's also uh, your podcast as much as it's mine. Um, hello, Parpol Bruns. Welcome back to the show. And you'll be pleased to hear that this week I am not on bedtime duty for mini DM, so this is a proper-sized show and yet somehow also fun-sized. I never understand how fun-sized was smaller than normal-sized when it came to chocolate. I mean, what, so it's more fun to be left hungry, is it? Fun-sized should have been so big that you can take novelty photos of you pretending to lift it up or sitting on it before gorging yourself on chocolate for several days until you feel sick. But damn, imagine the Insta stories, eh? Fun-sized. Um, what's been happening with all of you? Yeah, go on, tell me, go on. Oh, really? That's loads. Great. I'm sorry last week's show was a bit of a rushed mess in terms of my bits, and I hope that you enjoyed the brilliant Ruth Ibegbuna anyway. Um, I have almost recharged this week, as I've had a weekend that actually involved nice social occasions for the first time in many, many months. Um, grandparents did some babysitting. I got to go outside. I got so excited about getting to speak to other adults in a normal way instead of them, say, paying to see me or just handing over a child. Um, that I mostly spent my Saturday night being too tired to do anything other than clutch a beer like it was a life source and occasionally asking people how they were before me telling them that I was very tired and then forgetting sentences halfway through. It's a real downer when you do return to attempting to have a social life and realise that you've become an antisocial curmudgeon who'd probably be better off just having an evening in where I stayed close to food sources and warmth and stored all my inadequate energy use for uh, later. Still, sometimes it's nice just to have the headspace to imagine all the things you might do uh, if your daughter ever let you sleep properly. Um, thank you for coming back though and I hope you are still finding this weekly shouting useful uh, as we enter further boring and yet stressful political times um, huge thank you to Farron, <laughs> Michael, Envoy, James and three somebodies who all donated to the Kofi account with some very lovely messages um, I say somebodies because they put their name as anonymous I'm not just disregarding their importance as they are indeed very important to me not least for supplying me with substantial amounts of coffee should you wish to join the donating gang uh, by which I mean all you get is me calling you a somebody those are literally the gang benefits um, then please pop along to ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or patreon.com forward slash parpolbro and donate a few pennies to my caffeine needs all of which helps me keep this podcast going um, thank you also to those of you who've added reviews over the past week please do keep those coming on the iTunes and the other podcast app review pages um, and mostly it's not iTunes anymore is it it's Apple Music or it's Apple Podcasts they've made it they've, they've done the opposite of what the old shampoo adverts used to do when they used to say don't take two bottles into the shower and you can take one um, Apple have gone why have one iTunes when you can have three really confusing ones that make all the icons on the bottom of your bar really small but anyway um, if you can review the show it does really help um, and spreading the word about it also really helps all of it really helps and when I say helps I mean it helps the podcast do well which allows me to justify keeping doing it doesn't actually help the world escape its eventual fate um, so sorry if you're expecting a better payoff to your contribution but at the moment I haven't found anywhere to say buy coffee that uses my coins to stop the sun exploding I will keep looking though uh, Cafe Hero maybe Costa Survival uh, Starfucks I-, I will definitely 
I will definitely stop there forever. Um, also, thank you uh, for all the excellent guest suggestions that many of you have sent in. I have added them to a list of names that I have of people to get in touch with um, that also were I to be investigated by police might look like a hit list as I cross them off once each one gets back to me. And of odds, cut out pictures of all their faces and stuck them around my walls as well. Okay, not the last bit. Maybe a bit of the last bit. Um, so this week, I need to tell you about several podcasts that I'm on or uh, doing that aren't this one, because I know that you have infinite listening time in your lives, and all you really want to do every day is hear my stupid voice. Uh, well, you're welcome, as I can totally sort that out for you. Uh, first up, I'm on the Totally Unprepared Politics podcast this week, which was much fun, and I rambled uh, unprepareddly about Brexit, Syria, diplomatic community, and birds singing two-pack tracks. Uh, do check that out. The link will be in the pod blurb. Um, also, later this week, I'm doing the Ministry of Sweden podcast all about fake news and that I think will be out on Friday um, and those are one-off ones but I know what you're thinking you're thinking Tiernan and what I really love about partly political broadcast is all the jokes that don't really work why don't you do a podcast with none of those on it well you are in luck as I am now the host of the new season of Nesta's Future Curious podcast and it is much less jokey than the show but that's because I chat to genuinely fascinating social innovators and people who are actually positive about the future what I know right and all sorts of excellent humans who I would get on this podcast if I wasn't really talking to them uh, for another one uh, that would be cheating wouldn't it It'd just be like stealing guests from myself weird um, episode one of Future Curious is out this week there'll be a link in the pod blurb and it's all about having a survival kit for the future which sounds terrifying but it isn't um, go check it out I've popped a trailer somewhere in this podcast I will work it out later you'll hear it somewhere um, last thing is the live partly political broadcast gig is still happening at 2 North Down in King's Cross on October the 29th well um, it is happening but no one's really grabbing any tickets I know you're not meant to sell things like that I'm meant to tell you there's only a few tickets left to hurry up and grab but there's really no one's coming um, and that's fair because it's half term and it might be Brexit week and you'll need to save all your coins to be able to push into the eyes of foxes so you can use their meat for dinner um, and obviously unlike this show a live podcast show you can't just listen to it in your car or on the train but just for you lot if you do go to twonorthdown.com and grab some tickets and you'd like to come along you can use the code Brexit Fallout in all capitals uh, like you're shouting it very angrily um, and that will get you £2 off yeah £2 exciting times that will buy you the thought of a beer in London um, it will be very fun and there will be comedy and experts and a bar essentially a survival kit for the future god I really should have said that on the other podcast bloody hell what a missed that one anyway yeah please come along um, on this week's show I am talking to Helen Barnard from the Joseph Rowntree Foundation all about poverty in the UK plus there is a Brexit fallout catch up where I will spend several minutes telling you how still nothing has actually happened this whole podcast is just a clever way to plug the other podcasts that I do that actually have content isn't it I'm sort of like an anti-marketing genius I guess I should be hired by the Prime Minister any day now right have this in your mush Based on social media or news stories, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the worst suffering people in the UK are those who are really sad that someone's made a sausage roll they don't like, or a TV show wasn't written how they would have written it with their lack of writing experience, or, you know, someone put an apostrophe wrong, and that is just dastardly. Those sorts of obviously terrifying, awful situations. But the fact is, a chunk of the British population are currently in poverty, which means they have far more to worry about, such as, you know, being able to afford to pay for heating, or clothes, or rent, or to eat, just regardless of the type of sausage roll. 
You may remember that back in the early days of the Conservative government in 2010, we were told that the financial crisis was actually our fault because of how we were all in charge of the banking sector and somehow didn't use all our mighty corporate power that you and I, the people on the street, definitely, definitely have. You've got it. You've got loads. Of, I've got loads. I've just got all on my fingertips. And we could use that to stop the banks destroying all the money before they were bailed out with all the money. <laughs> Silly us. Silly us for not doing it. Totally our fault. And then, of course, it was definitely our responsibility to pay all the money back that we didn't lose or have in the first place. So austerity kicked in, more cuts were made than in Edward Scissorhands, and all the main systems of support in the UK were heavily depleted and have continued to be since. The UN Special Rapporteur, who, as I've mentioned before on this show, sadly doesn't do hip-hop beats while carrying bags, well, they might, uh, but they don't tell anyone about it. They said back in May of this year that the UK's social safety net has been deliberately removed and replaced with a harsh, uncaring ethos. The consequence of what was largely an ideological choice and my inability, obviously, to ring up Fred Goodwin and say, hey, mate, cut it out. And all of that means that food bank usage has grown massively, homelessness has more than doubled and child poverty is rife. Something that was raised by the leader of the opposition in his reply to the Queen's speech today, but received Johnson's retort that the free market will help him. You know, like it did in 2008. Oh, oh no, wait. Oh, dear. But what can be done about this rise in poverty in the UK when all that's being talked about is Brexit and those vegan sausage rolls are being made for people who want to eat them instead of not being made for those who don't? Well, this week I spoke to Helen Barnard, Deputy Director of Policy and Partnerships at the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, an independent charity that I'm sure you've heard of before, as they work very hard to solve poverty in the UK. She told me all about what could be done to stop the country's rising poverty issue and what needs to happen, very importantly what people in poverty actually want, and we do actually mention vegan sausage rolls. Yeah, I know, I normally put a joke one in there that we don't talk about, but actually, as you'll see, I really do. Here's Helen. I think the first question that I should probably ask really um, is how would you define poverty in the UK? Because I know that there's been various different definitions of it uh, by both uh, governments and organisations. And then there's also the questions of absolute and relative. But how is how would you define poverty? So I think fundamentally poverty is when your resources are well below your minimum needs. So what that means in daily life is it means you're locked in a position where you can't heat your home, pay your rent, buy essentials for your children. There's also the emotional side when you talk to people because being in poverty also means you're waking up every day facing insecurity and facing constant anxiety. So practically when we think about how do you measure that, that happens when people at the bottom of society fall so far behind the rest that they're shut out of what it means to live an ordinary life. So that is practical things like rent and heating, but actually it's also about can you be part of society? Can you do the things which everybody else takes for granted? So can your kids go to a football club or go swimming? Can you meet somebody for a coffee every now and then? So one of the things when you talk to people in poverty is the stress and anxiety that's constant and also quite often that feeling of isolation of being cut off from everybody. Now, there's also then the practical question, how do you measure it? And as you said, there's lots of different measures knocking about. Uh, the best one is actually something that was brought out a couple of years ago by the Social Metrics Commission, which uh, we're part of. And that brought together experts and people from across the political spectrum to essentially try and say, let's learn from all these other measures and come up with something that we can all agree on. And then essentially we can stop debating how you measure it and start debating what you do about it. So that's something the UK government is has now picked up and is uh, starting to take through to becoming an official measure. 
Um, in terms of just money, if, you're, if people want to get a feel for how much money do you have if you're in poverty, the current poverty lines, it's roughly, if you're a single adult on your own, it's about £8,000 a year. If you're a couple with two kids, it's around £21,000 a year. Right. So I suppose the question would be is how many people in the UK are below the poverty line at the moment? At the moment, there's about 14 million people uh, in, in poverty. And that includes just over 4 million children. And actually, we've seen a bit of a rising tide of poverty among children over the last few years. So that number's gone up by about 500,000 in the last five years. I think it's also worth noting that poverty is now largely a problem uh, that's experienced by people who are in working families. So maybe 20 years ago, if you looked at who's in poverty, it would be older people and older people who are out of work. These days, the majority of people who are in poverty have at least someone working. And actually one in eight workers are themselves in poverty. That, I mean, obviously any poverty is, is, is uh, not acceptable, but that feels like a very large amount uh, of people right now. Is that sort of uh, in comparison to, say, other countries? Are we experiencing some quite high levels? Uh, we're Yes, I mean, we are. We're about mid-table, if you look at us against lots of other countries in the OECD. So we've got a bit less poverty than America, but a bit more than a lot of European countries. Yeah, this 14 million seems like an awful lot. And I remember, um, I do remember earlier in this year that the UN Special Rapporteur did a report on poverty and they said it was systematic and tragic. Is that still an accurate description? And if so, how do we, what's kind of caused it to be systematic and how do you go about solving that? Uh, yes, I think that's a pretty good description. Um, I mean, one thing I actually think is, is quite hopeful is that public concern about poverty is at an all time high at the moment. So I think there's something that's really kind of deep seated in our society that we know it's not right to have that many people locked in poverty. Um, and I think that's a really good basis to be trying to build public support for taking action. And you use that word systemic. And I think that's really important because it is it's the way we've designed our systems that lock people in poverty. But that's also the key to releasing people. So, you know, we design those systems, we can redesign them. So, you know, we've designed a housing market which particularly in England locks people, a lot of people into expensive private rented sector homes, locks them out of affordable homes, but we can redesign it. So the Scottish housing market works quite differently um, and child poverty particularly is quite a bit lower in Scotland and the biggest reason for that is because they've designed a housing market which has a lot more council and housing association homes where rent's a lot cheaper. Similarly with the labour market, we've designed a labour market that locks lots of people into low paid, insecure jobs and that doesn't work very well for parents. But, you know, we can redesign that to make it work better. So I, I actually, I want to pick up on something you said at the beginning uh, of answering that question, which is just that people are changing their mind about, you know, or people are seeing that poverty is a problem. Because We definitely went through a period and I think uh, sort of very vividly remember sort of 2010s to maybe 2016, 17, when, when, you know, people were called scroungers and shirkers and there was all that horrible language used. And it seemed to be that if you were poor, that, that the general view of especially press and things was that it was your fault. Um, is that that's now changing, is it? And what sort of caused that change? Yeah, I mean, and when you talk to people in poverty, actually, one of the things that uh, comes up a lot is that feeling of stigma. So people who are hearing themselves talked about in that way, that has a really direct impact on how you feel uh, and on your daily life and how people might treat you. Um, 
So we've been working for the last few years with an organisation called the Frameworks Institute, which is a brilliant group and it's worth going to their website because they've done really interesting psychological research, essentially, on lots of big social issues. And what they do, what we've worked with them to do, is, is to look at how does the UK public think about poverty, because that will help us communicate better about it. And what we found is that uh, people, all of us, hold multiple conflicting ideas about poverty in our minds. And the way you talk about it will trigger off one or more of those. And that can either help you build support for tackling poverty, or it can actually set people off on a way of thinking which takes them away from solutions. So one of the big issues is uh, there's this idea they call self-makingness, which is this idea which is very strong that it is your individual choices and how hard you work that determine where you end up. And what that does is takes people away from understanding that there are these systems around us which determine what the options are and that actually most people who are in poverty are there because the systems have locked them in a position where there aren't any good options that will take them out of poverty. And so we've been working on a lot of communications for ourselves and for other people, which try and make visible the idea you've got these systems, they can be redesigned, that will release people. So, I mean, as we mentioned earlier, it's systematic. There's so many systems in place that are causing poverty. There's issues with the, the jobs markets, issues with the housing markets, issues with the, the benefit systems at the moment. What would make the biggest changes to people in poverty right now and what do they want to happen? That's a great question, because I think actually the other thing that we saw in a lot of media coverage over, the, you know, over, over many years is the voices of people in poverty themselves don't get heard very much. It's always people talking about somebody else. So we've done a lot of work quite recently to understand what people in poverty want and also thinking politically, what do low income voters want? Because we've obviously at some point there'll be an election and what we found is that low-income voters, there's quite a big block of voters and they're very likely to be swing voters. So they could actually help determine the next election. So we've, we've done work, we've done polling and we've done workshops and so on with people. And basically what people are saying is they want a serious programme on living standards. So when we've talked to people about what they want, what they basically say is they want a serious programme of change that will lift living, living standards so the cost of living is the top concern. Also housing, good jobs. So for people who are stuck in low paid work, they want better pay, but they also want training so that they can progress up to better paid jobs. And they want flexibility so they can balance being a parent or caring for somebody with work. And they want stability and predictability. So one of the things we've seen at the bottom end of the labour market is not just low pay, but people who are finding they don't know what hours they're going to be working from one month to the next, which then makes, obviously, life very difficult to plan. And people want access to a stable, secure, decent home. I mean, it's kind of one of the fundamentals, isn't it, that you build the rest of your life on. And so what people want is if they're in the private rented sector, they want more secure tenancies. They want to feel they're not going to get turfed out at any time. But also there's a lot of people saying that they want there to be more council housing, more housing association homes, which have got lower rent and are more stable. And the other thing people want is for social security benefits to keep up with the cost of living and to be the kind of anchor that a lot of us need at one time or another if things get difficult. And so improving social security. So when you need to rely on it, you know, it'll be there, you know, it'll help you get back on your feet. 
obviously there's been uh, a lot of this has been caused by austerity and by certain ideological measures but it kind of also requires as you as you mentioned earlier, an entire systematic change not just of various systems in place but also the way we think about how work works um you know i know things have been proposed recently by various different parties of say a four day working week but that comes into the you know things like that would change the flexibility and so does it we we need to kind of think again about how this entire country i guess operates yeah we do and i think we need to be kind of purposeful about it so we need to think okay here are the big systems what do we actually want them to deliver for all of us and then to make changes so one of the things we have seen both the labor party and conservative party commit to a higher minimum wage um and that's that's a, that's really good it's one of the raising the minimum wage over the last few years has been knocking out the extreme low pay and it's something that has a lot of support both for people on low incomes and across the board but particularly for parents or for people who have extra costs from disability or caring a higher minimum wage by itself won't turn the tide of poverty even of in work poverty so we also need things like topping up the earnings of people who are on low pay and particularly who have kids topping up their earnings so they can reach a decent standard of living and again there's a big majority across the population in favour of that but we also need lower cost homes because in recent years what we've seen is the minimum wage keeps going up but housing costs keep kind of cutting away at the benefits people feel from that so getting those three things in place is what will really release people so that they can you know have a build a decent life give their kids the opportunities that they want and Labour also recently uh, called to scrap universal credit, and I know the Conservatives said they'd look at changing it. Um, but considering the flaws that universal credit has had, including that it can take several weeks for people to even get their first payment, which can you know, render them into arrears and cause all sorts of other issues, um, would scrapping it be a good idea, or would the cost of implementing a new scheme kind of end up making it not such a good idea? You know, Where do you stand on that? Well, I think with universal credit, there are, um, I think there's, there's two things. One is to remember that the systems that it's replacing didn't work very well. And that's why people came up with a replacement. So universal credit has some very good things at its heart. So particularly the idea that you have a single system that covers whether you're in work or out of work. Because one of the problems with the way the old systems worked was that every time you got a job and then went out of work again, you had to reapply for a different set of benefits and that kind of built in delays and risk. So the idea of something, particularly now we've got, you know, we've got much more flexible work, which means people are going in and out of jobs a lot. Having a system that helps you keep steady while you do that is a really good idea. And there are some bits of it that were actually that do actually work quite well for quite a lot of people. But there are, obviously, there are things to do with universal credit which really don't work and which do need fixing pretty urgently. So the wait at the beginning, so it's a minimum five-week wait till you get the first payment, which obviously a lot of people on low incomes don't have savings. And, you know, the bus driver's not going to give you five weeks till you pay the bus. The shop's not going to sell you food on on uh, on account while you wait for it. So people need that money much faster. And there are other things about universal credit, which the Labour Party have said that they want to improve, which are absolutely right, things that pull people into debt and hardship. But I do think that there is... So I think it's quite interesting. The headlines were the Labour Party is going to scrap universal credit. When you look beneath that, what they've really said is 
here's a list of things, some of which are about universal credit, some of which actually aren't. Things like limiting all benefits to two children, it's got nothing to do with universal credit. Freezing benefits, nothing to do with it. But a long list of stuff we will fix quickly, which is great. And then they've said we will look to see if we actually will replace the whole thing down the line. I think that's quite risky, you know, for all the people who've been been through this massive upheaval, having yet another big upheaval of the system. I think that carries a lot of risk. My hope would be if you can fix all these things from universal credit, we actually would find we don't need to replace it. We can make it work. And with all your uh, with all the research that you do um, at the Joseph Brownsey Foundation, um, you know, is is. Are these systems like universal credit the way forward? I mean, do you ever look at uh, studies such as universal basic income? Are there other things that perhaps in the future might serve us better to avoid poverty? Um, there are lots of ideas out, uh, good ideas out there. Universal basic income, I think there are there are good things about it in that it's trying to get away from lots and lots of means testing, which can be very onerous. In itself, it's not going to be the answer to poverty. Um Mainly because if you kind of how much how much income you need is obviously going to vary according to where you live, what your rent is, how many kids you've got. And if you know, if you think about a single mum with three kids living in London is going to need a completely different amount of help from a single person living in a flat in Hull. So the idea you can have a universal basic income, which will actually meet people's needs, even if you did pour money into it, which you'd have to. It's not going to meet everything. So you would still have to have top ups for some people. You'd have to reinvent an equivalent of housing benefit to help people with high rents. You'd have to reinvent an equivalent of a child tax credit. Um, so I think it's it has some good to it, but it's it's not going to really be the answer. But there are lots of other things happening around the country which are really changing things, kind of big things and small things. So, for instance, in Scotland, the Scottish government Uh, is introducing a new Scottish child payment, which is on top of the UK-wide social security system. And we've been doing a lot of work with them to help them design it. There's lots of charities up there helping as well. Um, And that is going to help free thousands of children in Scotland from poverty. Down at the other end, we've got uh, something like in Salford. So the Salford Poverty Truth Commission... There are these poverty truth commissions all around the country which bring together people with direct experience of poverty and decision makers in their local area. And they're quite long. They run for a couple of years and they look at what are the problems facing our area and what can we do? So one of the things the Salford one said is there's a big issue about council tax debt, which is something we see all over. So for people in poverty, debt can really pull you down into destitution, but it's debt to the DWP or to councils or utilities. So Salford Council listened to what the Poverty Truth Commission said and said, OK, we're going to change how we approach council, da- council tax debt. We won't call in bailiffs. We won't pile on kind of pressure and so on. We will use, if you're getting into council tax debt, we'll use it as a chance to talk to you about what issues you're facing and why you aren't able to meet it. And that can be a gateway to help rather than a gateway to more debt. So there's lots of things happening all around the country in Leeds, where I am. Leeds Council uh, have really pushing on the idea of um, inclusive growth. So growth that will lift up living standards for everyone in the local area. They're using um, public procurement and planning. So when they're giving planning permission for schemes, they're building in, putting in good jobs, training opportunities and so on. 
which will give local people the opportunity, not just for any old job, but a job that will let them get some training and progress. And those kinds of things are happening all over the country. What we need to do is you know, get them happening in more places and get some of the big national changes made. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And we'll be back with Helen in a minute, but first, the return of... Richard Yes, Brexit fallout is back. And let me just go through all my notes about exactly where we are with the whole Brexit thing. And... Oh, sorry. These all appear to be non-papers. Oh, well. But something does actually have to happen by the end of this week. With the EU summit and the Saturday sessions, or Saturday morning ship bin, or whatever it is you want to call the Commons doing weekend work, hopefully for the sort of pay they'd give a 16-year-old working part-time at game, either somehow, as unlikely as it is, there will be a Brexit deal and the UK will leave the EU on October the 31st, meaning any French ghosts popping over for Sam Hain may have trouble getting back on the Eurostar. Sort of, sort of done there? Yep. I'm very pleased with myself, actually. No, I really am. Or we won't have a deal and then Johnson will have to write a letter to the EU asking to keep this never-ending edge of tomorrow where you don't even get the satisfaction of Winzip smiling eyebrow Tom Cruise getting repeatedly maimed. And then the EU may accept that and then the UK will head to an election or they may veto, which means no deal crash out on October the 31st, followed by an election. Or Boris Johnson may have cast an ancient spell on his letter to the EU, meaning it turns into a donut when it arrives. And so legally he's okay, but we still crash out on October the 31st. If you had a diagram with all the different arrows on it, then basically, you're a nerd. But that's okay. Sorry, I mean, 
if you had a diagram with all the arrows on it, there's two no deal possibilities, one deal possibility and one, oh God, it's still happening, why won't anyone just let me die possibility. Now, obviously, Johnson's proposal to avoid the backstop is all the big news. The plan is for Northern Ireland to sort of be in the EU Customs Union, but also not, but also be in the UK's one, but sort of not. And all the declarations of goods to be done electronically using technology that doesn't exist. And when it does, companies like Yodel will just sign shit for you and leave them in a bin and pretend that it counts. I'm not bitter. Not bitter. At the moment, the EU doesn't share any border with a non-EU country without it having a big old physical customs check. But the way around this would be that Northern Ireland won't need customs checks with the EU as it will share all their regulations, but it will need customs checks with the UK as we'll have sort of disowned it as a family member and just let the other parent have custody. But the DUP, you know, everyone's favourite political party of the happiness abyss, they want Northern Ireland to have the same as the UK, and you know them whole troubles thing that no one ever mentions. Well, wasn't that all to do with Northern Ireland's relationship with the UK and Ireland and wanting to be part of the UK and not Ireland? And... Yeah, the whole thing sort of feels a lot like Boris sat there and listened to a child say, hey, I'd like an ice cream, but no nuts, please, as I'm allergic and that would kill me. And he nodded his head and bought them the tasty snack of a peanut butter covered giant nut with nut dust on it encased in a veneer of nuts. That's the bit of the deal we all know about, and the general assumption is that the rest of it is not too different from the plan of former Prime Minister and what a nook or cranny would look like if it was human, Theresa May. You know, same shit, different font. But actually, Johnson's deal is much harder than May's was, and according to the government's own data, would leave everyone in the UK £2,250 poorer than before. The official EU exit long-term analysis papers state that real wages would take a long-term hit of 6.4%, something that Home Secretary and someone who'd sabotage a cake fair to make sure she won, Pretty Patel, denied, before asking where those stats were from and being told that they were her own. Hey, she was probably on holiday meeting war criminals when they were released, let's be fair. The report says 2% of the hit to national income will be taken out of public finances, approximately £700 million per week, which means not only will it not go to the NHS twice, but it will be used to make things barely as they are now. May's deal in comparison only had a 3.9% hit to GDP, but that's because her free trade agreement with the EU made UK regulations the same as theirs, saving costs. But Boris wants to cut all the red tape to allow for trading with old Trumpy face and all his chlorinated cocks, but that would stick a £15 billion a year bill on customs forms for trade with the EU, which would really hit manufacturing, the North East and Northern Ireland, while any new migration policies would completely destroy other sectors from like fruit picking, which we've already seen, all the way to Bristol's emerging tech hub. Now, sure, we could get amazing deals from all the rest of the world who've seen how we blame our trade partners for all incompetencies, and you know, that makes our exports of pessimism, rain, and inherent xenophobia really attractive to them. But the government reports factor in all possible deals, and we still lose a shit ton of money. So if all other parties vote down a deal on Saturday, it's not just because they really want to get an extension and have an election and get into power, because that's all that matters to them. I mean, it probably is. But it's also very likely that they just aren't funded by people who'd survive that sort of terrible deal and could potentially get us a better deal, you know, like the one that they all voted against lots, and then maybe make us only lose less money. That is true patriotism right there. Seeing all the shit options and only choosing the least shit shit one. It's no wonder Brexit negotiator and flagpole Michelle Barnier said Brexit was like climbing a mountain, because it's rocky, really hard, getting tricky to breathe, and Boris would be very keen to cut the rope if it meant that he got to the top first, even though he's unlikely to pack the necessary equipment in the first place, because he thinks he'll just reach it with confidence. So, fingers crossed for shitstorm Saturday. Ugh, as if it wasn't bad enough, now they've got to ruin our weekends as well. And now, back to Helen. 
it, it sort of comes back to what you were saying earlier of just listening to people and finding out what they need and working on that as to how to solve their immediate problems because it's, it's different for everyone in, in every part of the country. It is. I think it's also worth saying that this isn't just a government thing. I think it can be dangerous to think that poverty is a problem that any government can solve on their own. There's actually a lot that we need to, ha- we need to happen that's not government. So, for instance, employers play a really good part in this. And there's some great examples of how big employers have been changing their own practices. So there's one, um, Pets at Home, the big retail store, sell, sells all those toys and stuff. Um, they've, they've worked for a few years now where they were finding... Um, Basically, the thing that happens a lot of the part, a lot uh, that if you're a part time worker, you're much more likely to get stuck in low pay because jobs that are a bit further up the scale are, don't tend to be advertised as open to flexible or part time work. So you get lots of people who are working part time way below their skill level and are struggling to make ends meet because of it. So poverty is much higher for part time workers than full time. So Pets at Home looked at this and also looked at the fact that women didn't seem to be moving up to manager roles worked out why and then they've been redesigning some of their jobs so that frontline workers who want to can progress up without losing the flexibility that they need because they're balancing kids or elderly parents greg's actually greg's is another one that's quite interesting so greg's shops everywhere they had a problem that they couldn't get people to apply for kind of supervisor manager roles and they talked to the staff they found out it's partly because people were scared if you took that job and it didn't work out you couldn't go back again so if you couldn't get the flexibility, say, so they started doing trial progression um, so you could try out a higher job. And that's something, again, it kind of helped people who were stuck at the bottom to start moving up a bit. So there is a lot that employers can be doing, which can really unlock these things. That's fantastic. That's brilliant. It also makes me uh, very happy that I consistently buy vegan sausage rolls now, um, supporting a good scheme. Um, so before I ask, obviously, you've mentioned lots of really positive things there, which is brilliant. I, would, I want to ask in a second about what listeners can get involved with. But I do have to ask the dreaded question of how much of an issue will Brexit be? I'm so sorry. So sorry, I have to ask. Um, how much of an issue will Brexit be in terms of poverty in the UK? And do you think that there are outcomes that could be positive? I mean, or is the biggest problem that it's just distracting from all these other underlying issues which are leading to poverty? Um, I think most of it is that. So I think, so we have, we, we did some work both before the referendum and afterwards to try and understand how different Brexit scenarios might affect people on low incomes. I think the first thing is the biggest drivers of poverty are here at home. And so are the solutions. That was true before the referendum. It's true now. It's going to be true in 10 years time. So most of the power to do something about it is with our government, with our employers and so on. It's also worth saying, I think it's very hard to predict how any given kind of Brexit will actually affect the economy and different parts of it. Because it's never it's never happened before. One thing is when we started looking at it, Um, it's quite hard to model because there aren't really any examples where a country has been really embedded in a big trade block and then has suddenly come out again. I think one of the... So I think, as you said, one of the big problems is that it's sucked away time and energy from all these other issues. And that's something when we went out and recently talking to low-income voters, one of the things that was really interesting was even if they were Brexit voters, even if they're in parts of the country that are strongly Brexit, uh, uh, pro-Brexit... That's not what was going to drive their vote in the next election. And they were incredibly frustrated that politicians hadn't been taking action on the things that were affecting their living standards now. Um, 
I think one good consequence, though, is that that vote to leave, which was a big shock to a lot of um, a lot of politicians, a lot of people who are kind of who are running the systems, it did actually focus some people's minds on well, why are people in some parts of the country and particularly in low income groups, why were they so angry? Why were they kind of so willing to make a big change? And it's because they were locked out of prosperity and opportunity for a very long time. So in terms of if we think about the actual when when Brexit happens, the biggest risk for poverty is if prices rise. So we saw that after the vote in 2016, the pound fell, prices went up. And because benefits had been frozen, people on poverty was in poverty were seeing prices go up in the shops, but a big part of their income stood still. So that swept thousands of more people into poverty. So the bit that that would be the biggest risk is that we see prices go up again. But, you know, the UK government can and must protect people on low incomes. You know, the UK government can say, OK, we've left, we're seeing higher prices, we will make sure that benefits, tax credits, universal credit provides the support that people need while we're kind of getting our economy back on track. There's also, there are some parts of the country where their economy is particularly exposed to any trade disruption. So obviously it depends what kind of Brexit we have, how much disruption there could be. You know, it could be fairly smooth, it could be a lot of disruption. There are some bits of the country where um, a lot of their jobs, for instance, are in um, in the types of sectors and uh, which are very dependent on trading with the EU. And so you could see problems for them. But again, you know, we've, we have had these kinds of things before. The UK government, um, I very much hope in their preparations, one of the things they're preparing is to be able to kind of intervene in places in the country that could struggle to invest and to try and kind of build up those economies again. Well, yes, it's um, we we all very much hope that what they do is completely unknown. So uh, what I will ask, it's a slightly more positive, uh, I suppose, is that what can listeners get involved with right now? Uh, people that we know can do something themselves. <laughs> what um, what campaigns are you currently working on at the Joseph Roundtree Foundation that, that people can get involved with? What kind of campaigns can they help with at the moment? Yep. And there there is lots and lots that people can do. So... Um... In terms of formal campaigns, one that I think it's really worth looking at is something we're involved with, but we're not leading. The Trussell Trust, who is a big food bank network, are leading on it. And it's called the Five Weeks Too Long campaign. And it's focused on that wait at the beginning of universal credit, because what they find is lots of people come to their food banks and say, I'm here because my universal credit hasn't come through yet. So we've been working with them and with a bunch of other people to really push the government to say you've got to cut that weight and we've come up with costed solutions, ways they could do it. So if people uh, Google five weeks too long and the Trussell Trust, there's a website you can sign up for that campaign as a kind of formal campaign. I think there's a lot, though, that people can do kind of activism in their own areas. So, for instance, talking to your local council and saying, so how do you handle council tax debt? If people on low incomes are getting into debt, what do you do about it? Do you send in bailiffs? Because if you do, that's really going to be pulling people deeper into problems. The other thing people can campaign on locally is affordable homes. So we need a lot more social and uh, council housing association homes. That's something people can be talking to local councillors, to local politicians about. And I think you can focus on you know, local MPs. We're going into election time. MPs are going to want to know what's going to swing your vote. 
actually saying to the MPs, we want you to commit to making sure that you lift the benefit freeze, that people's support keeps up with prices. And as I said, just thinking about employers, big local employers, they care about what their customers think. They care about what the local communities think that they're in. So actually talking, saying to local employers, are you paying the voluntary living, living wage? There's a lot of living wage commission uh, works helping employers sign up to it to pay the higher voluntary living wage, which is based on some research that, uh, that we've supported. Actually asking employers locally, we'd like you to sign up. You know, if you're a Tesco customer or a you know, customer of any other big chain, again, people do care about what their customers think. And that gives us, each of us individually, power to say, we want you to behave in a way that will help loosen the grip of poverty. Do you find officially that that, that works, putting pressure on companies? Because I sort of get the, the feeling that, you know, when, when companies are, say, shamed on Twitter or shamed online, then they do turn around and go, right, we better fix this because we want to still appeal to people that may purchase from it. I think I'm not sure that shaming in itself works because I think quite often people kind of kind of re re retreat to a bunker. But certainly one thing that's been quite interesting with um, the so business in the community, which is a kind of umbrella organisation that lots of businesses are part of where and it's thinking about their wider role kind of socially and economically. They've gathered together lots of case studies of businesses that have been doing things to promote good work in a kind of quite a broad sense. And that's where the examples I mentioned about Pets at Home and Greg's and so on are. When you read those case studies, one of the things it does is to draw out from the employer, well, why, why did you do that? Why was it in your business interest to do that? Um, and what most of them say, and it's the same when you talk to people who are paying the voluntary living wage, that um, it, it really helps with things like retention of staff. Um, so it helps you cut your staff turnover. That then helps you if you're in a manufacturing sector, it helps you improve your productivity if you're in a service sector, it really helps to improve customer service. Um, so there's been some other, particularly in the service sector, the phone company EE and a few others, they have really wanted to push up the quality of their customer service because customers are becoming more discerning. One of the ways you can do that is by giving your staff more secure contracts, paying them better, helping them train, because then you get a lot more staff engagement and so they're finding it does give you those paybacks in terms of your business, um, your kind of business goals. But also, I think, you know, businesses, I know our local organisations, they you know, have lots of stuff they want to do with the community. Um, and I think, you know, they can they can direct those efforts at things that will really help with poverty. So I think there is a real kind of untapped power of consumers to be trying to pull more businesses into this kind of area of doing things that, that loosen the grip of poverty. Definitely. And, and as you say, it benefits everyone. So it seems it seems silly not to. <laughs> it seems really silly not to. Um, apart from yourself uh, and uh, the Joseph Randry Foundation, of course, um, who would you recommend that listeners follow or read or check out um, about tackling poverty? What campaigns and or people do you go to for, for information? Um, so there's loads. So obviously, yes, JRF, we have we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we have a newsletter. You can get lots of good stuff from us. Um, there are there are other charities who are doing really interesting things. So in Scotland, the Poverty Alliance in Scotland, they do a really interesting mix of kind of policy work, but also they're great on participation and really um, kind of being led by the by people with direct experience of poverty. So Poverty Alliance are great. The Child Poverty Action Group, some people might be aware of, they're very good. 
um, the Trussell Trust, they are quite interesting, although they're, you know, they're a food bank provider, they do a lot of stuff actually around policy and, com- and campaigning now. Um, there's, funny, the, um, the Work and Pension Select Committee, which sounds incredibly dull, it's one of the parliamentary select committees, but um, they're, they're quite interesting, they've become a real campaigning force in the last few years, and they have lots of just fantastic reports where they really go through exactly what isn't working in the system and how you fix it um, so if people are interested in some of the nuts and bolts they're a brilliant source uh, there are also think tanks so there's a right of center think tank called bright blue um, who we've we've done some work with who do some very interesting work around some of these different issues um, and there's another right of center think tank called onward um, who are who are do lots of really hardcore policy work we've just done some work with them which is around skills how do you get a skills policy that really helps people break free and kind of get better jobs? So I think across the political spectrum, there's some people doing really interesting, interesting stuff. Thanks so much to Helen for sparing the time for a chat. Uh, you can find Helen on Twitter at Helen underscore Barnard and the Joseph Roundtree Foundation are at jrf.org.uk and on Twitter at jrf underscore UK too. The links for the London Challenge Poverty Week, uh, last week's Scotland Challenge and the Five Weeks Too Long campaign are all in the podcast blurb this week and on the partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk website too and all of Helen's recommendations will be there very soon as well. Don't forget, if you have interviewees you'd like to recommend or subjects I've just completely ignored, because, you know, I'm only a human being with limited brain space, so sometimes it does need a nudge with a thought stick to remember all that's going on. But that's okay, as you can send a thought stick directly to me with your suggestions. To the contact page on the website, at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you can block all your Instagram followers except one and post a fake suggestion, and then when I interview that weird fake person, you'll know Rebecca Vardy did it. It's probably just better to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast this week. Thank you for lending your ears and I hope that I was able to return them with added interest. Don't forget to check out the Future Curious podcast and the Totally Unprepared Politics show podcast this week and the Ministry of Sweeping One. And of course, grab your tickets to the live Parpol Bro show, which will be a lot of fun, but you know, live, like fun size, but in real life. Please give this show a lovely review on your podcast app, slam some dosh in the code for your Patreon accounts and just generally please spread the word like vocab butter so that all the good people in your life can get this noise in their ear sandwich. No, wait, that sounds, it sounds, it sounds really disgusting. Uh, just maybe send them a link or something so they can see it with their eye sandwich. No, it doesn't, doesn't even make sense. Please do a nice tweet. Thank you. Thanks, as always, to Acast, my brother, the last skeptic, and Cat Day for typing up the linear liner notes for the partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk site. This will be back next week when Prince Charles finally gets to the throne after Boris Johnson tries to make the Queen read all of his children's promises for the homework they might do if they can be bothered, then his own line of duty slash fanfic, and a series of poems he wrote about bridges, and she decides it's far more fun to walk into the sea. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Aaron Banks's Sorry Seems to be the Hardest Word, a guide to which emojis to use to avoid having to admit that you're a racist. Culturally misappropriated a national dish? A quick post of the shock face emoji should persuade no one it was an accident. Used xenophobic historical stereotypes to make a point that isn't really there? Avoid online rage with one of the two dancing women followed by an octopus or someone lifting weights. Job done! Get sorry seems to be the hardest word, and you'll get away with all your online bigotry in minutes. Though to be fair, you probably do already anyway.
Hello, Tiernan Duyeb here. We at Nestor are gearing up to bring you Series 2 of Future Curious, the podcast that predicts the future by talking to those who are creating it. The Nesta crew have been scouring the country and all around the globe to find the best, boldest and most life-changing ideas to entertain, challenge and possibly freak you out just a little bit about how our world is changing. The first episode is coming soon. In the meantime, though, do me a favour. Even in this age of incredible communication technology, nothing beats word of mouth. So it'd be great if you could tell a friend to like and subscribe to this podcast so they too can make sure that they'll be prepared for the future. Future Curious from Nesta, bringing bold ideas to life and straight into your ears. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. <laughs> 